Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome to Soul to Soul Radio right on 101.9 Chai FM. Good morning, everyone. It's so great to be with you all here today. What a wonderful day. And today we're going to look at how to make every single day count. We're going to explore the Torah portion of this week. Take a little break from our discussions about Shabbos. And today we'll talk about Abraham and Sarah's blueprint for meaningful living. You know, the story's told of three men at a friend's funeral who hear the rabbi give a truly beautiful eulogy. At the Afterwards, the three are sitting together and discussing what they want to hear said at their funerals. So the first friend says, Ah, I devote my entire life to the medical practice. I hope they talk about the many lives I saved as a doctor. The second friend says, I devote my life to family. I put a lot of effort into raising my kids well. I hope they talk about how I was such a great father and husband. The third friend says, I hope at my funeral, someone points at the casket and says, Hey, look, he's moving. Oh, my friends, I know that's a good old joke and you've heard it many times, but let's talk about that and the relevance to our Parsha and the message and lesson, which you may have seen, I talked a little bit about in last week's article in the Jewish Report, but I want to talk a little bit more about that today because it wasn't only a theme in last week's Parsha Vayera, where we read about Avraham and Sarah, Zikamim Baim Bayamim, that Avraham and Sarah were getting old, coming with their days. This week, we read the portion of Chaye Sarah. What does Chaye Sarah mean? The life of Sarah even though it speaks primarily of her passing and her burial by Avraham Avinu. Very beginning of the Torah portion, there's one verse synopsis of Sarah's life. And I don't, wanna, I don't want this to sound morbid. I'm not trying to talk about death. We're talking today about life. And that's the interesting thing. The portion that talks about Sarah's death, in fact, highlights her life. So I'm going to quote a few verses here and there from the portion. Let's analyze them. Let's learn lessons from them. Everyone knows, very famous, the first verse of this week's Parsha, which says, It says, the life of Sarah was 100 years and 20 years and 7 years. These were the life of Sarah. And the next verse says, and Sarah died in Kiryat Arba, which is Hebron in the land of Canaan. And Avram came to eulogize Sarah and to bewail her. Now, if you look at Rashi's commentary, Rashi notes two curious features about this verse. If Sarah lived 127 years, why does the verse separate the units and say 100 years and 20 years and 7 years? Why doesn't it simply state... 127 years without the word years in between each unit. It's not the way we speak. Furthermore, why does the verse conclude with these were the years of the life of Sarah, something we already know at the beginning of the verse? Seems to be redundant. So Rashi explains that actually Sarah was really beautiful, matriarch of the Jewish people. She had to be beautiful, right? We're all her descendants. We have to take after her looks. That's why we're all beautiful. If you have beautiful parents, you have beautiful descendants. Avram and Sarah must have been beautiful. 
But, the, but Rashi tells us that each of those 127 is a description of her beauty. And he goes on to explain that the word years is written after each numeral to tell us that every single number is to be expounded upon individually. When she was 100 years old, she was like a 20-year-old regarding sin. She hardly sinned. Just as a 20-year-old doesn't sin because she's not liable to punishment, so too, when she was 100 years old, Rashi says she was without sin. Now, when she was 20, she was like a 7-year-old in beauty. No, uh, no Botox necessary, okay? And then, what do we say there? These, these are the years of Sarah. All of them, Rashi says, were equally good. She lived a life that was superbly good. Now that sounds great, but let me ask, let me ask you, do we want to paint our ancestors as so perfect? They never made any mistakes. They were, and, and indeed, is that the way the Torah actually describes the life of Sarah? Just look at the Torah portions we read in the last two weeks, and we'll see a little bit of a different picture. Rather than a serene life of always good, always perfect, if you go back to her history, we see that Sarah's journey in this world had its challenges. There were trials, there were tests, just like her husband Avraham. They lived together. Sarah, yes, after all, she was at Avraham's side when he left the land of his forefather, we read two weeks ago, and Lech Lecha, where God says, go. And he was treated to, just look at the last two portions, warfare, famine, challenges, struggles. When she and Avram traveled to Egypt, he claimed she was a sister to save his life. She was kidnapped by Pharaoh, made by Avimelech. He had to say this, you know, sometimes you have to say white lies. Sarah was barren until her old age, only eventually to be blessed with the birth of Yitzchak. So in order to protect Yitzchak, she sends Yishmael and Hagar away. We read this all in last week's portion. And finally, Avram takes her only son and nearly sacrifices him to God, which is the last straw that breaks the camel's back, so to say. That's why she dies. It's that shock element, which today we call it a heart attack. Now, we know Sarah was our matriarch. She was a prophetess. She certainly must have had a positive attitude throughout their journey, never lost sight of the fact that, that there's a loving God behind all these challenges, which is something we always have to acknowledge as well. Whenever we face obstacles and challenges in life, realize it comes from God and God loves us. God gives us our evil inclination, our challenges and struggles to bring out the best within us. But could we really say, as Rashi does, that every year of her life was, was, was so good, was so virtuous, was so wholesome and perfect? Doesn't it seem that there were times in her life that were better than others? You know, there were, there were struggles, there were challenges. So this seems to certainly give us some thought to ponder. And it's not only about that. Because after we read about Avraham buying Ma'ara Samachpela as Sarah's burial ground in Hebron, that we, many of us have visited, you can go there today. The Torah says about Avraham, Avraham zakein ba bayamim Avraham We read in this portion that Avraham was old advanced in his days, 
And God blessed Avram with everything. On a simple level, it seems to be introducing us to the next section where Avram sends his servant Eliezer to find a wife for Yitzchak. And it's describing Avram is old, advanced in his days. That's life. People get old. And Avram himself got old. His wife, he was a widower. His wife passed away. And so he turned his attention, as many olders do, to his legacy. And the Zohar, though, finds, though, a deeper meaning in this that I want to share with you. Really a fascinating insight. The, the Zohar tells us that Avraham, what does it mean he came with his days? Baba Yami, we read it in last week's portion too about them as a couple. The Zohar says it was rich days over the course of his entire life. Every day was filled with faith, with closeness to God. That Avraham was virtuous, was righteous, was pious all the days of his life. He came into his old days, he and Sarah were perfect. Now again, if we read this about Avraham and Sarah, three times I gave you three different verses. Last week we see it says Avraham and Sarah buying Bayamim, but that they were coming, that they were old, Zakanim buying Bayamim, they were old coming on with their days. This week we read about Sarah at the very beginning of the portion describing how perfect and beautiful she was. And then we read again further in the portion that Avraham was old and coming on in his days and the Zohar saying that his days were perfect. Now, as we know, all the stories of the patriarchs and matriarchs aren't just historical accounts. Every story in the Torah is for the purpose of instruction in our own lives. We are expected to emulate our holy forebearers. The stories of the Torah are not his story. It's not just the story of Abraham and Sarah. But as you know, they're our story. The word Torah means instruction. It's our instruction manual for life. There are lessons that are relevant to you and me, to each one of us in our modern day context. So what is the, what is the story here about Avram and Sarah's life? How are we expected to live such lives? Were their lives really, really that perfect? Let me ask you, if you go back to their history, didn't they have ups and downs, challenges, struggles? Was Avraham not the son of Terach, who was a steeped in, in idol worship, in a pagan lifestyle? And Sarah was his niece, was Terach's granddaughter. Avraham married his niece. Did she not grow up with these struggles? Sometimes we like to paint these pictures of, of great people as, as perfect, as flawless, as, having no struggles, and that doesn't make them human. And the czar seems to be indicating that they, were li- that they lived their life so perfectly. You know, I, I think one of the most difficult moments I saw in my life and I hope I don't sound heretical saying this, but I remember I was 12 years old and it was after the Rebbe suffered a debilitating stroke. And there he was, he would come out to see the Hasidim and we were living, I was privileged to grow up in Crown Heights, the home of the Rebbe, 770 Eastern Parkway. As a child, till my bar mitzvah almost, I experienced living with the Rebbe on a daily basis. And then he had this debilitating stroke that, that left him paralyzed in half of his body. And one day, it was a Hasidic holiday coming up soon, the anniversary of Yitzhak Kislev. The Rebbe came out onto his balcony that he was able to join and participate in the prayers and be part of everything. And he 
he was struggling, he wanted to say something. And there were many chassidim and elders and, and, and assistants and everybody was trying to figure out what he was saying. And watching that frustration, to me, you look at a man who for more than 40 years was leading the Chabad movement and for many years before that, he was so skilled in oratory, no notes, and the Rebbe would speak and was fire and brimstone and he, would, he had powerful messages and we're so lucky and privileged today to see that he, uh, that he embraced technology and we have so many videos of his talks all the way from the very beginning in 1950, he even insisted early in the 1940s when the previous Rebbe came to America that it would be all captured on camera. He embraced technology all the way from the beginning. That was the Chabad philosophy that the Rebbe shared with us. And we're lucky today to have almost all of his teachings recorded. From the books he wrote, from the discourses he taught, from everything that the Rebbe gave us, we have those teachings today and boy are we lucky to have them because we could live with them. I probably no personality in history had their teachings as recorded as the Rebbe did. And yet I'm seeing this man, 90 years old, plus 90, maybe it was 92 then, on this balcony, after a stroke, trying to communicate a message, and just couldn't. It's torturous. The videos are available. One could watch them on YouTube. And you watch that. And there was a lot of thought going in my head over the years. To me, the Rebbe is a Manish Rebbe, you know, it's tzaddik, flawless. But maybe, just maybe, again, this is my interpretation, and don't murder me for sounding like this. I think that perhaps the Rebbe wanted to show his human side as well. Human beings get sick, human beings could have a stroke, and the Rebbe, I think it's even greater when we see his personality as one who accomplished and achieved and did so much, and yet showed us his humanity as well. Perhaps, again, it's my own interpretation of the events, of the incidents that happened. But the question we're remaining with here is, Abraham and Sarah, who lived as the Torah is describing, a perfect life, yet the question remains, it seems that they also had struggles in their life. And how do we synthesize their struggles and the reality that the Zohar is painting, that their life was so perfect, they came on with their days, they came with all their days, all their days being virtuous, perfect, righteous, pious. And this is the question we're going to discuss today. And we'll be right back. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a moment. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back to Soltis Already on 101.9. Hi FM, I'm Rabbi Keeping Great to be with you here. And we're going to continue this discussion about the life of Abraham and Sarah. Now, let's just think for a moment the value of a moment of life. You know, it's easy to see how in the lives of, of great and holy men and women, such as Avram and Sarah, the patriarch, the matriarch of the Jewish people, that their stories have influenced entire civilizations. Every day might have significance and meaning. It's really the case that each of our normal lives, are we really supposed to be like that? Are we supposed to, you know, can we not have difficult days? Can we not have challenging days, struggles? And the truth is, we can. And guess what? I want to share with you an interpretation again that I learned from the Rebbe that says that they did too. And this idea is actually clearly expressed in the laws of Pikuach Nefesh. The vital Torah commandment of saving and preserving life. 
Now, with the exception of only three commandments, which I'm sure you all know, that is murder, idolatry, and adultery, or any forbidden relations, the entire Torah we know is suspended for the purpose of saving a life. If God forbid someone's in a critical danger on Shabbos, we all know the various laws of Shabbos that we're, we're studying and we're discussing them right here. We'll continue next week, please God. And you're allowed to violate any of the laws of Shabbos or kosher or anything else to save a life. Pick up your phone. Call. Drive somebody to the hospital if there's an emergency. Don't get so pious all of a sudden. You dive into the water to save someone's life if you know how to swim. You do what you can, anything you can, if it means you're going to save somebody's life. You break Yom Kippur if somebody's in life-threatening need. They need to eat, they're sick, you give them the food. Whatever it might be, that's Jewish law. Jewish law is that life takes precedence over anything. The Torah tells us, we are given the commands to live by them. This is what our sages tell us, that a mitzvah should always be done when there's certainly, when we could live by it. And if there's any predicament, if there's any question of one's well-being, then all mitzvahs are suspended. So it's clear that life and its preservation are absolutely valued by Torah, by Jewish law. Now, if we want to break that down even further, we learn that it's not only life as a whole that's important, but every single moment of life. If anyone to ask you, look at my phone, my WhatsApp line. What does it say? What's my tag? Carpe diem. Seize the moment. That's something I try to live by, and we all know that. Every single moment is precious. And so if you look at the context of pikuach nefesh, of saving lives, the Mishnah speaks of a person who's found lying under a pile of rocks. Now normally, we're not permitted to move rocks on Shabbos. They are muktzah. If they have no purpose, it's muktzah. But to save a life, obviously you can move it because saving a life trumps everything. And the Mishnah concludes that if you're unsure whether the crushed person is alive or dead, meaning you're uncertain, a dead person, by the way, a corpse is muktzah. Can't touch a dead body. Because there's nothing, there's no, there's no inherent value, so to say. A dead body is dead, it doesn't have life, there's nothing you can do. But if you're in doubt whether a person's alive or not, for sure you can violate Shabbos, even if you're not certain. Because saving a life is saving the whole world. Now if that's the case, the Talmud asks, why the Mishnah says, that we say that once we removed someone from the rocks and discovered the person still alive, we're obligated to rescue them. The Mishnah already said at the beginning that you're permitted to move rocks to rescue someone. Why does the Mishnah conclude in seemingly being redundant? We see the law already. And then it says that if you see the person's alive, for sure you can move everything. So it seems like it's repeating itself. Maybe it should just tell us that, you know, what to do only in the case when you discover a person is dead, halfway through moving the rocks that you stop. Very interesting. And the Talmud discusses this. The Talmud says, if you find the person alive, you must rescue them. But if they're dead, leave them. If you found them alive, is obvious. Gemara asks a question, why is the Mishnah repeating itself? And the Gemara concludes that the repetition is necessary to teach us that even if a person we're rescuing will live only just for a short amount of time, you know that this person is not going to have much more life. And you might think that 
if when you removed a person, you discovered they're crushed, they're nearly dead, they're at the edge of death. So forget about it. The person's muktza. They're, they're not going to have any life. No, the Mishnah comes to add the words to teach us that unless the person is absolutely dead, we have to continue removing those rocks to save them. Even if it's a violation, if is only going to, we're violating Shabbos and it's only going to give the person a few minutes of life, we still have to do so. And it's a fascinating discussion in the Talmud. The Talmud says we begin to rescue a person and check their breath to find that they're still alive. We're obligated to complete our rescue even if it's just minimal amount of life. Why, says the Gemara? Because a person can return to God and do teshuva in their final moments in this world. Teshuva, the act of returning to God after making mistakes in life, can be accomplished in that short amount of time, even in a moment. And the Talmud explains that we're obligated to rescue an individual, even if they're at the brink of death, in order to give them a chance to do teshuva, to make amends, to fix up whatever mistakes they previously made. And this is, I think, a very powerful point about life. That every person, every moment we have, even if it's those last few moments, are precious. Imagine what you could achieve. Maybe that's just an example that Talmud's giving. The teshuva that a person can do in those final moments. And therefore you can violate any laws of the Torah, any laws of Judaism. Because the person has an opportunity to do teshuva, to make amends and... If a person has a chance to make amends, we should be doing everything possible to facilitate it. In the Mishnah Brura, which is a halachic work by the Chafetz Chaim, he talks about the reason that's explained about Teshuvah. He said, we don't just set aside the laws of Shabbos and save a life, because that life will, 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 will maybe have a chance to do some good deed. He says we save a life even if it's just a few moments, even if the person won't do any good. Because every moment is precious. Every single moment of life we know is so valuable. You might think otherwise. Listen, I have had experiences with hospitals that said, I remember my mother was very ill in a hospital. And the hospital said bluntly to us that it's a waste of a bed. You might think that every moment is precious to everyone. No, there are doctors out there, wonderful, great doctors who can help patients all the way through to a point, and then when they feel it's futile, they say, that's it, done. Don't need to work anymore. But yet, Jewish law tells us that every single moment of life is absolutely precious, is absolutely valuable, and we should do everything we can. We save a life for the sake of life itself, as, as the Chafetz Chaim puts it in the Mishnah Baruch. Now, even if a person won't do teshuva, Right, first the Talmud says, well, you know, they have a chance to do teshuva, to repent, to make amends. He's saying, even if they don't make amends, every moment of life is valuable and should be treasured. Every single moment. Well, one question still remains. Very beautiful what the Torah tells us. So, you know, we learn about the importance of life. My question is, we see that the full faithful life of Avram and Sarah, and you know, we see the Torah values every single moment of life. How do we feel the preciousness of life in in what we're discussing? How do we feel that? How do we connect with this idea 
and practically, hopefully, harness it to motivate us on a bland Thursday. You know, they say, the five days after the weekend are the hardest days for me to deal with. And now, there are obviously many ways, and every therapist is going to spin it their way. But I want to share with you some ideas that come to my mind. Obviously, ideas that are based on Torah teachings that are important for us to learn and know. There's a trick of sorts, okay? Really an easy method of changing the way we think and feel. And it's a method of recognizing today by modern psychology and has been part of Jewish philosophy for centuries. And it's stated in a book called the Sefer Achinuch, the book of education. Its author is unknown. It's a work that's a biblical commentary giving us different reasons and explanations for the various commandments. But the author of the book is not known. He said he wrote this book for his son to study on the long summer Shabbos afternoons. And these days, the Shabbos is much longer. It's, you know, in the summer, Shabbos was ending before 6 p.m. These days, Shabbos is ending after 7 p.m. So we have a little bit more time to study. So let me share with you a little insight that the Sefer HaChinuch says. He says, Da, a person should know. Da in Russian means yes, but in Hebrew, Da means no. No as in K-N-O-W. You know the difference between a nish, do, do you eat a nish with a knife or a knish with a knife? The answer is I don't know. He says, Ki adam nifal kifi A person is conditioned by his own actions. Our heart and our thoughts always follow after our actions that we do, whether they're good or bad. And even a person who at heart is a complete sinner and desires only evil, if his spirit should be enlightened and he will put his efforts and actions to persist in Torah and mitzvahs, even if not for the sake of heaven, but he engages in doing good, says the Sefer HaChinuch, if you do good, even if I'm not a completely righteous person, I will become a better person. And from that which is not for its own sake, meaning a person might be doing good for whatever ulterior motives and reasons, well, it will come, lishma will come for its own sake. Because our hearts are drawn after the actions. We do something good, and then we just feel compelled to do more good. The opposite's also true. A person can be perfectly righteous, but if they slack off, uh, oftentimes it causes a person, otherwise, those who participated in our Tanya class, the other, we've talked about the idea, that where does laziness come from? Laziness is not an inherent problem, it is a symptom of being in a negative space. When I'm in a negative place, I tend to become lazy. And you could offer the laziest person in the world a something good that they like and put them into a positive emotional space, and they're going to get excited about it. So, he says the same thing, the Sefer Chanech is saying, if you do something positive, you're going to get into a good headspace, and you're going to want to do more good. Mitzvah, Gureris, Mitzvah, one good deed leads to another. And conversely, Avera, Gureris, Avera, when we do something wrong, it obviously is going to lead into a negative space, and we wind up doing wrong things as well. So, so the Sefer Chanech continues, he says, Our sages of blessed memory have told us, and it's written in the Talmud Tractate Makos, God wanted to grant us merits and therefore God gave us many laws and commandments. And when the more mitzvahs you have, the more opportunities you have to do good in the world, the more opportunities you have to do good, the better of a person you we become. So he's telling us our hearts are drawn after the actions. If we decide to do something good, 
good feelings are going to come from it and we're going to be in a better place. So let's put that into practice. If we want to live a life to the fullest and to appreciate each day and every single day, simply add positive, joyous and meaningful acts to each new day, to every day that passes. Pick up the phone, call somebody, do something positive. If you're feeling down yourself, I have, it's Baduka Manusa, tested and proven. I'm also a human being. I also have days that I feel morose, melancholy, lugubrious, downtrodden, maybe not clinically depressed, but we all have depressing feelings. And I can tell you from my personal experience that on the days that I do good, that I uplift somebody else, those are the days that I feel better. You make someone else feel good, you feel good. You put a, a smile on someone's face, even if I'm feeling down and I put a smile on someone's face, what did it cost? It's free to put a smile on someone's face. And guess what? We feel better too. And eventually you'll come to appreciate the worth of each day. I heard this from Rabbi Dr. Abraham J. Tversky. Many of you read many of his books. He's nearly, he's, he's around 90 years old and he's written around 90 books, a book for each year of his life. And Rabbi Tversky talks about many of his own personal struggles with depression, with anxiety, with, with lots of difficult feelings. And here he's a therapist and a doctor and a rabbi and he's helped many people. And he says one time he spoke with a lady he knows, a lady who called him and said she's on the verge, on the brink of committing suicide. Her life just was not feeling worthwhile anymore. And he sat on the phone with her for over an hour talking her out of it. And he used every reason he's ever read in any psychology book to convince this lady out of committing suicide. And eventually she relented and she said, Rabbi, I won't take my life. And they hung up the phone. He was glad he saved a life that night. But he bumped and turned to the supermarket sometime later. And he said, to, he asked her, he said, just tell me, please. I, I read to you so many different reasons. I was opening my books and trying to come up with this reason, that reason, the other reason. I'm just curious for my own empirical evidence to know what works and what doesn't. Tell me, which one of the ideas I shared with you that night worked that prevented you from committing suicide? And she said, none of them. I said, then, then what was it? She said to him, Rabbi, when I encountered you on the phone for over an hour, willing to express your care, your sensitivity, your, your sympathy, your empathy, that's just told me there actually is somebody out there who still cares. And that's why it didn't take my life. And as I've said many times, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Each one of us can benefit from, for our own good, for our own well-being. When we're there for another, when we uplift somebody else, we ourselves are uplifted. And this is a very powerful thought and idea that the Sefer HaChanach teaches us. And this, my friends, will continue in a moment. We'll be right back. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul Radio 101.9, Chai FM. So let's talk about another idea, another recommendation that I've read from the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement. A really profound teaching. Again, I want to read it to you from his own writings from the book called Savasa Rivash, which is a compilation of the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov. And he says as follows, One should be sincere and consistent in their service of Hashem. The main thing is not to forget to learn from ethical works each and every day, whether a large amount or a little. 
One should also always seek to attach themselves to good character traits and upright behavior. Not allow any day to pass without doing a mitzvah, a good deed, whether small or large. You should remember that it says, be cautious with a light mitzvah as you are, stre- as you are with a strenuous one. It's a statement of our sages in Pirkei Avot, that a person should be, have a zahir, the mitzvah kala kevachamura, Every mitzvah, don't decide what's more, what's more important than another. Do what you can. Every single mitzvah is important. And he says, look at those words. The words of the Mishnah is, have a zahir. Zahir is translated as cautious. But you know what else the word zahir could mean? Something I explained a few weeks ago. Zahir could also mean to illuminate. He says, your soul is illuminated by a light mitzvah, just as by a strenuous one. Every mitzvah is important. God desires your heart. It doesn't matter everything else. Give your heart, give your soul, give your your depth, your sensitivity, your care. And he concludes by saying, one who keeps a mitzvah will never know from evil. What does it mean keeps? What does it mean keeps a mitzvah? He says, keep that mitzvah with you. It will keep you going for the day. He's telling us that we need action. This is a world of action. Pirkei ethics of our fathers, we discussed we, we, some of the chapters weeks ago, earlier in lockdown, where we read that the main thing is action. Whether a person is doing large or small mitzvahs, if you're doing is the main thing. Some people, their only exercise is getting out of bed, or maybe there's a little bit of exercise in their jaws. Don't just be worried about myself. Let's do something for another. The Baal Shem Tov would teach... For 70, 80 years, a soul comes into this world just to do a favor for another. It's a world of action. Nobody cares how much you know till they know how much you care. That's the main thing. So if we're going to do action, do mitzvahs, care for others, it strengthens our relationship with God Almighty and it strengthens our relationship with our fellow human beings because we're there for another. Now, there's a, another method that we could appreciate every day and every single moment, every hour in our lives. Like we said, to save a life, even if they're just going to be a few more moments of life, it's still saving a life. We don't say the person's on the brink of, of death. It's a waste of a hospital bed. Now, it's widely accepted in many schools of modern psychology that our thoughts, our mindset has an effect on our emotions. And yet, we know there's a powerful Hasidic Concept called Moach Shalit to use our mind to control our emotions. There's an old Hasidic custom known as Hisbaninus, contemplation. That we try to seek change, to change emotions with the power of our mind. Using our mind to control our emotions, our feelings. So by focusing our attention on a certain idea, turning it over in our mind and thinking about it deeply, we could eventually develop a connection in an emotional state as well. So what's the idea that we should contemplate to help us value life every single day, to appreciate every moment of life, to really live by that motto of, of carpe diem, to seize every moment? There's lots of ideas, but one simple one that I often recommend is the way we start our day. Start 
each day with an attitude of gratitude. What's the prayer that every Jew says when we start our day? Just a few weeks ago, Gal Gadot was interviewed for some major, I think, vanity magazine. I didn't read the whole interview. But one thing that stood out to me, she said, was this prayer. She says every single day she starts the morning. Every day we start our day saying, I give thanks before you, living an eternal king, that you have returned my soul with mercy. Great is your faith. Now, it might look like a simple acknowledgement that God is re- returning our soul, that we woke up today. Some people still don't wake up. Some people don't wake up in West Park. But this prayer is really much more than that. It acknowledges that each and every day is rejuvenated. We have new life, a new force. Thank God that I have this opportunity. There's a new divine energy. And that's the gift of sleep. Some of us are sleep deprived. Personally, I was in a Fabrengen last night till 2 a.m. I had to be up this morning, 6 a.m. Before 6 a.m. I had to be at Shul, right? Morning prayers. So we'll survive with a, with a little bit less sleep. Sleep is for after 120. That's when we could sleep plenty then. But this is the theme. Every day is a gift of God. Yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery. Today is a gift of Hashem. And that's why it's called the present. And this is, a, this is a, the, the blessing of time that God gives us. And we say this in our Shema prayers each morning as well. Think about one of the prayers we say every morning. The, the prayer of Lakel Baruch Neimai Sitenu. But we sing it. Lakel Baruch Neimai Sitenu. Lamelech Kachai Vekayam. What is this prayer about? And just as we come to appreciate the meaning of every day of life, we ask God to give us the opportunity to do another mitzvah. Not just ourselves. That we should comprehend, we should understand, we should be able to learn and to teach others. Because the best way we learn is when we teach another. I was very lucky that my mother used to tell me when I came home from school, she would always ask me, what did you learn? And then she would say to me, before I went to school, I want you to tell me tonight when you come home, this is when I was a high school student, and I sometimes struggled with learning or being focused, she wanted me to tell her while she was preparing supper what I learned that day. So I knew I wasn't just learning so I could acquire the knowledge. I had to not teach it to her. Read Stephen Covey. Read Dale Carnegie. They'll all tell you that the best way to acquire information is to teach it, to tell it over to a few more people. We say that in a prayer. God give me the opportunity to learn, to study, and to teach. So in the prayers of Shema, we come to appreciate that the time to concentrate, as we say in the prayers, we realize God creates the world every single day. Another one of the prayers we say, God recreates the world. This is a refreshed vitality. And I'm not going to go into, into right now about theology. I'm talking about a very basic, simple concept that we could all relate to. Last, yesterday, whatever struggles, difficulties, challenges we had is yesterday. Thank God I had a good night's rest, even if it was just three, four hours. I was able to sleep with you, and I am refreshed now. It's a new day. So rather than letting a day pass us by, what we're able to do is fill the day, and hopefully it's not a dull day. Give it life, give it meaning. We are the ones who make give the meaning to life, to every single moment of life. 
And so the idea of God's constant creating the world and bringing and making it new, this is what takes us back to our patriarch, our matriarch, Sarah and our Parsha. We're taught that every soul is put on earth every day for a purpose. As they say, if it's not good, in the end it will be good. And if it's not good, it's not the end. We're here for a purpose, every one of us. No one is alive on this earth by chance. Someone will say, it's one of my other favorite words, you are indispensable, every single person is. We're created by God for a reason, for a purpose. And when we say moda'ani, we acknowledge not just the thanking God for giving us back our soul, not just that we're alive, but that God has faith in me, God has faith in you, that you are here for a purpose that no one else can achieve. That's why your fingerprint is unique. That's why every blade of grass is unique. Your DNA. God is saying this world cannot exist without you. You have a purpose that no one else can achieve. Only you. You can do something in this life that no one else can. As the Zohar tells us, God doesn't create the same world every day, but rather God creates each day with a different attribute, a new divine energy. This is a concept about Shabbos again in the Zohar. I want to read to you just a very brief teaching. It says, for six days you should work. We say this in Kiddush. What's the work of the six days, asks the Tsar, And answers, in the name of Rabbi Yossi, six days did God create the heaven and the earth, rather than in six days. Meaning, six days. What is the idea? That God renews the world with a new and unique energy each day. And that explains the hundred years, the twenty years, the seven years of Sarah that, that the Torah opens up with. What's the separation of these years? Rashi told us that it's to tell us how each one was equivalently good. And the Talmud takes it further and tells us it's showing us three stages. There's the childhood stage, there's the adulthood stage, and then there's the senior citizen stage. That's the one I hang out with, right? And each one has its purpose, each one has its goal. There's a reason, there's a purpose, and we each have our purpose. Even if it's at the brink of death, there's still a purpose. So even in the first verse of our Parsha, we see how Sarah's life was divided in these different stages with different goals. And yet, her genius and her praise was to constantly find purpose, no matter which stage of life she experienced. Yes, we know that she and her husband Abraham were born into families of idol worship, of pagan uh, idolatry. And yet, we see the virtue in every moment of their life. Regardless the challenges, the struggles, the difficulties, the ups, the downs. And this is the deeper explanation of how Sarah's days were all equally good as the Parsha starts off to tell us. Not only did she value each day and each moment, but she was able to find spiritual purpose and meaning in each time, whether they were the high times or the low times, the ups or the downs, the difficult struggles and challenges, the dark moments or the wonderful moments. And since her true life was not connected with her physical fortunes, with her spiritual, with, with, uh, you know, the riches, but there's meaning to life. It's not just about how many things I accumulate. We can't take our gadgets, our phones, our cars, our money with us to the next world. But we can take our mitzvahs, the good deeds, the smiles we put on other people's faces, the purpose that we added to this world. And she was able to find life in every single day. 
even when she was stuck in the house of Pharaoh, even when she struggled with infertility. And of course, the Torah is not his story. It's not just Sarah and Avram's story. It's our story. We too should learn from her to live every day of our life to its fullest. Carpe diem. When we do a mitzvah of joy, when we put a smile on someone else's face, when we're able to uplift someone else's struggles and challenges, when we're able to help people out, guess what? We are making the world such a better place. And that's why you probably noticed the art campaign and the be kind signs that we at Chabad House have been promoting all over town. What is ARK about? ARK is acts of random kindness. It was the Rebbe's final message when CNN came to him just before he suffered that debilitating stroke. And they said, what's your message to the world? And I think the world needs to hear this message today all the more so than ever. And the Rebbe said, increase an act of goodness and kindness and that will make the world a better place. And when they asked the Rebbe, when finally apartheid was coming to its crushing, to its end, and Nelson Mandela was finally released, and people wanted to know what's going to be in South Africa. And the Rebbe's message to South African Jewry was unique. He said it's going to be good in South Africa until Mashiach comes, and even better after. So we are living in Gan Eden. We have a prophecy, as the Rebbe said it, that South Africa will be good. And my friends, look at the world. Look what's going on in other parts of the world. Look at the the lockdowns. Yes, we also have lockdown. We also acknowledge our struggles and challenges. And last night the president reminded us about how careful we ought to be. But remember, it's good here. And it's only getting better. And unfortunately, I see too many friends all the time emigrating. They think life is better elsewhere. They think the grass is greener, greener pastures in America and Australia, wherever it might be. Unless, you know, I say to people, go home or stay home. Either you go home to the Holy Land, to Israel, you make Aliyah, or stay here where it's good. The reality is we are a diminishing community. I have a friend who moved to America thinking everything's going to be great and is struggling to support his family. I know this is the same with people who moved to Australia and other places. It's not so easy anywhere else. But regardless where we are, regardless of our struggles, I think we have to learn how we're going to make the best of every situation. To live with that attitude of gratitude, to start each day with modani. We were given each morning a new set of opportunities, a new set of blessings, and we can learn to make every single moment count and value the life within us that is so precious to God. Really, we have to see that just as Abraham and Sarah were able to look back at all their life and realize it's all good, even the difficult moments are part of what shapes us. Life is filled with twists and turns, detours, but the road to perfection is through imperfection. And perfection is probably only in heaven. So in this world, we're going to struggle. We're going to have our ups and downs. But remember, failure is not when you get knocked down. Failure is only if we stay down.